Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Let me begin by reminding you of the context of this letter. And so, 1 Corinthians was written to a church at the city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul uh, strategically went into this city for the purpose of planting a new church. This was a, a city that was rather large, especially in that day, upwards to 200,000 people. And it was known for, in fact, the city was synonymous for its sexual immorality. In fact, it prided itself on being a, a cosmopolitan, metropolitan area where we're not going to judge you at all. So you can, you can do whatever you want, whatever feels good, however you want to live, it's all open here. It's all welcome here. You might remember that in this city, there was up on this larger hill called the Acrocorinth temples to false gods, Greek pagan gods, and one of them, Aphrodite, the goddess of, of sex and love, housed supposedly a thousand temple prostitutes. And even these Corinthians were, were struggling with ongoing temptations. And so we see the blatant idolatry and sexual immorality of this city, and I ask the question, is it really any different in our culture today? As we look over all the, the, the cultural landscape of our day, we are in an unprecedented time of, of a sexualized culture, aren't we? Sex sells. We see it all over media and movies. And just to throw some stats out at you today, uh, 77% of the TV shows in the evening evidently have sexual content in them. 92% of all movies have some sexual content in them. The epidemic of pornography continues to abound. Uh, just some statistics for you, according to a survey conducted by the Barna Group. The following percentages of men say they view pornography at least once a month. 79% of 18 to 30-year-olds. 67% of 31 to 49-year-olds and 49% of 50 to 68-year-old men are viewing pornography at least once a month. Lest we think it's just a male issue, the following percentages of women say they view pornography at least once a month. 76% of 18 to 30-year-olds. goes down from there, 16% of 31 to 49-year-olds, and so on. And so we're... We're up against uh, temptations all around us when it comes to the media, when it comes to pornography. We're living in a sexualized culture, but it's not just a sexualized culture, it's also a culture that devalues marriage. Have you noticed this? A culture that devalues marriage. Now, when, when Jamie and I get, got married, I was 22, she was 21, and we thought that was normal. Uh, today, that would be rather young. In fact, uh, today's average woman is married at 28. Today's average man is married at the age of 30. So marriages are being delayed, and yet sex isn't. When, when you think about this, like as a teenager, your home, hormones are already raging, and when you get into your 20s, 
and you have that kind of sex drive, and you're not married yet, you're susceptible to all kinds of temptations. And so we see so many couples that are living together. In fact, two-thirds of couples who apply for marriage licenses are living together. It's, it's come to the point in our culture now where it's almost strange if you haven't first lived together before you're married. So many couples are cohabitating and they're facing danger. So this is our cultural landscape and it's complicated. It's complicated. When we dive into issues of sex and marriage and singleness, I realize we're opening up a can of worms. And so we need clarity we desperately need clarity. We need, we need 2020 vision on these issues in the year 2020, don't we? We need God's view of, of marriage and, and sex and singleness and to see the beauty of sexual intimacy that gives great glory to Jesus Christ. We need clarity because a lot is at stake. Your marriage is at stake. And if that's not huge enough, it's not just your marriage, but future generations are at stake here. We don't think about that nearly enough. Your choices matter. They will influence, they will impact future generations. And it's not just your marriage, it's not just future generations, it's the glory of Christ that's at stake. And if you're a Christian, you care about the glory of Jesus Christ. So listen, you are either displaying the glory of Christ or you are distorting it and worse yet, you're desecrating it in the way that you approach these issues. So we have a lot to look at today. So let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're not there already, the words will be up there on the screen and back of me and let's see God's vision of sex and marriage. Chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. This is the word of God. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So back to verse 1 again. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So if we were to rewind back to chapter 1, Paul has been responding to a verbal report He's received this report from a woman named Chloe, part of the, the church there at Corinth, and now he's responding in chapter 7 to some questions in a written letter given to him by the people in Corinth. So these specific questions he's seeking to answer, and you can imagine this is a new church filled with new believers who are coming out of this kind of sexual immoral background, so no doubt they had lots of questions and maybe you're coming in curious today as well. Maybe you've got questions about these issues. And here's a quote from the church at Corinth. Evidently, some were believing this 
we see here in verse 1 again, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul didn't say that. This is coming actually out of the church at Corinth. Now, the church at Corinth was struggling with a culture that mostly held to a permissive view of sex, which, which basically said, indulge in it however you want with whomever you want. It was basically like a bodily appetite that you had to gratify. So when you have the urge, seek to meet those urges. Indulge in it. That was the permissive view that pervaded much of Corinth. But there was another view called the restrictive view. And this view actually went counter to the permissive view and said that let's just avoid pleasure altogether then known as asceticism. It's almost this, this holy, holier than thou. Let's just abstain altogether because sex is bad. Let's abstain from it even in marriage. And so Paul sees this problem of both the restrictive view and the, the permissive view, and he seeks to counter both and give us God's view on sex in marriage. He says the permissive view is going to lead to all kinds of damage. It makes too much of sex. The restrictive view distorts sex. It makes too little of sex. And so what is the right view? What is the biblical view? What is God's view and his vision for sex and marriage? Look at verses 2 to 4 again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So verse 2, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, he basically says, get married. Now, he doesn't mean that marriage will instantly fix lust. And you know that if you're a married man. Marriage doesn't somehow take away lust from our lives. So he, he's not saying that. He's simply responding to those who held to this restrictive view to go ahead and have sex as long as, as it's in the context of marriage. It also might appear to you that when Paul's talking about these things, that he's saying that marriage is really only about sex. But he's not saying that. He's just responding to specific questions again from the Corinthians. Elsewhere, he'll give a more... Uh, elaborate discussion about marriage. Ephesians 5 is one place you'll find that. But here he gives us a vision of sex in marriage that brings great glory to Christ and guards our marriage from the evil one. And so what I want to do is I want to give you, from this text, God's vision of sex in marriage summed up in three words. Sacrificial Mutual and purposeful. These are the three words to describe God's vision of sex in marriage. Sacrificial, mutual, and purposeful. Let's start with the first one, sacrificial. Look at verse 3 again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice the word give. The emphasis here is on giving, fulfilling, and serving your spouse's sexual needs. So being a servant doesn't stop when you enter the bedroom. You are to serve your wife and your, and your husband sexually, to be sacrificial in your love. It's not about you. 
And it's not about performing, it's about serving. Tim Keller and his wife uh, wrote a book together called The Meaning of Marriage, and he says this, when we stopped trying to perform and started to simply love and serve each other, things started getting a whole lot better. We had a greater wonder and safety and joy in our relationship. So God's view of sex and marriage is to serve one another. That's true pleasure in serving one another or outdoing one another in showing honor, as it says in Romans 12, verse 10. Serving one another. Isn't that the opposite of what our culture communicates to us about sex? It's not so much giving and serving as it is getting and taking. Sex is all about you. Getting your desires met. Pleasing yourself, whatever the cost. And it leads to justifying pornography. Since, since I can't get my desires met now, I have a right to fulfill them on my own. And it leads to justifying sex before marriage. We call it premarital sex to somehow soften it, right? As if it's just a matter of timing, pre. Let's just call it what it is. It's sin. It's fornication. It's wrong. And it's damaging. And it's dangerous. Don't believe the lie that you can engage in premarital sex and not have any consequences. And sex isn't just intercourse, it's any and all sexual activity before marriage. At its core, sex before marriage is selfish. What you're saying is, I can have sex with no commitment, no covenant, no permanent relationship, with no strings attached. That's not real love, that's lust. C.S. Lewis once said, lust is going after the body, love is going after the person. Now, we can be easily swayed and deceived by our culture, can't we? When it comes to our views of sex and marriage, David Brooks, a New York Times writer, journalist, wrote this article called Three Views of Marriage a couple years ago, where he outlined three different lenses in which we can view marriage. The first one is the psychological lens, where we look at traits in our potential spouse, and, and we try to think about what seems right, what seems compatible with who we are. And so it's all about picking the right one, what seems right to us. That's the psychological lens. The second one is the romantic lens. This is the most popular one, where we marry the one that we fall passionately in love with, right? That gives us all these goosebumps. We can't get over this person. We've got to spend time with them. And this is what movies capture, right? On the big screen. Most of the romantic comedies, it's all about a couple falling in love, and then the movie ends, right? Like, there's nothing about their marriage because that's considered to be boring. We don't want to hear about that. That's actually where the fun begins. The true joy begins in marriage, in God's design. So you have the psychological lens, the romantic lens, and then surprisingly, this author, I don't know if he's a believer in Christ or not, but he talks about the moral and spiritual lens. And he says that marriage exists for something more than you. 
Marriage exists for something more and something greater than you. It's a sacrificial partnership. And then he quotes from Tim Keller where he says this. In a good marriage, you identify your own selfishness and see it as the fundamental problem. You treat it more seriously than your spouse's selfishness. The everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. In this lens, marriage isn't about two individuals trying to satisfy their own needs. It's a partnership of mutual self-giving for the purpose of moral growth and to make their corner of the world better. And that leads us to our second word to describe God's vision of sex and marriage. It's not only sacrificial, it's mutual. Look at verses 3 to 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for reason. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So notice sex is mutual. Your bodies belong to one another. And this would have been radical in this day. Men who are reading this would have agreed with that first part. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. But they would not have necessarily agreed with that second part. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This was a misogynist culture that uplifted men and put down women. Sadly, it still happens even to this day. This verse, by the way, does not justify abuse or in any way coercing someone into sex by saying, hey, your body belongs to me. No. This is about mutual, sacrificial love to one another. And this comes right out of God's plan from the beginning. In Genesis 1.27, says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you can see from the very beginning, we are equals, men and women. We're both created in the image of God. Yes, we have different roles to play in the marriage relationship, but we are equals in value. Not only that, he created us in marriage then to become one flesh. And so then we share our bodies. In Genesis 2.24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One. One in every sense of the word. Not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And this is a profound mystery that points to the beauty of Jesus Christ and our union with him, which is why it's such a tragedy when we give ourselves to someone else sexually. And so we mutually give to one another and make ourselves available to each other because we belong to one another. We are one. This is why sex can only be truly fulfilling and satisfying in the context of marriage. Listen, God designed sex and marriage to create permanence, to create permanence and security, which all of us long for and can only ultimately be found in Christ, in his love for us. 
So sex and marriage is designed to be a one flesh bond of belonging to one another where we sacrificially give ourselves to one another in mutual love and full commitment. Again, Tim Keller's words are helpful here. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, listen, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything else. And so sex is mutual. It's not one-sided. God invented it. He commands it in marriage to create permanence and pleasure for the good of both partners, both husband and wife. And so we ought not to take the, the permissive view of sex where you indulge in any and all kinds of pleasure to feed your own sexual appetite. This could even happen in marriage where you, where you think it's all about you and if I'm fulfilled and the frequency of times it makes me happy, it's all about me. No, that would not be sacrificial and not mutual. And yet at the same time, we ought not take the restrictive view of sex where we think sex is bad. We should abstain or withhold sex from our spouse. After all, God invented pleasurable sex in marriage. And we need to recapture the beauty and the, the glory of what it means to have a mutual sacrificial love for one another. Now why? Because it brings glory to Jesus and guards our marriages from the evil one. So that leads us to our last word in God's vision of sex and marriage. It's sacrificial, it's mutual, and it's purposeful. It's purposeful. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is the summary statement of this section. This is what Paul has been driving at. It's the main point. He says, don't deprive one another. Don't abstain from having sex with your spouse. Now he's talking about not just the, the physical act, but also the romance and the emotional closeness and the love that we experience as couples together. He says, don't neglect this important aspect of your relationship. Don't do this. And then he gives this exception. Look at verse 5 again. Don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. For a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So this, is, again, is mutual. This is a mutual consent. We have agreed that we need to take some time to seek God in prayer, perhaps even to seek out prayer and counsel from others in our marriage. Just a side note, side note this, this goes without saying that couples are praying together, and if that's something new for you, I want to encourage you to take a step in this area to, to be able to just have a conversation with God with each other. A lot of times we just get hung up on this like, I wouldn't even know how to begin. I don't know the right words to say. It's not about the right words. It's about your relationship with God and your relationship with your husband and your wife. Don't worry about the words. Just come together and start. 
If you've never done this, I encourage you right before bed, just simply take turns. Simple prayer of thank you, God, for this day. Help us in our marriage. Help us with our kids. Pray together. And yet there are times where perhaps in your marriage, you're seeking prayer from others and counsel from others. Perhaps maybe you're, you're dealing with an unresolved conflict in your marriage and, and it's hindering you guys and, and, and sex just keeps covering the problem. Just keep moving on and you never deal with the conflict. Or maybe there's still lingering shame from past experiences or even present addictions and they're keeping you from experiencing oneness in your relationship and so sex isn't very satisfying because of it. Whatever it is, Get help and talk about it. I'm also aware, I'm not naive, of the fact that there are challenges that sometimes get in the way of coming together as couples. I'm not trying to say it's always easy. Raising children, it's, that's a challenge. It's exhausting. It may hinder you from coming together, but make sure that this time away from sexual intimacy is relatively short. Why? Notice what he says. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So listen to this. This may sound shocking. Here's what he's saying. Sexual intimacy is a weapon against the enemy. You see that? Sexual intimacy is a weapon against the enemy. When you're coming together as a married couple consistently, you are guarding yourselves and protecting yourselves from the enemy. And here's why. Satan hates marriages. You know that, right? He hates Christian marriages, most of all, because he knows what they represent. He knows what they display, the beauty of Christ and his sacrificial love for us on the cross and the glory of our oneness with Jesus as the church and as his bride. And so he wants to do whatever he can to keep us from coming together. He will distract you. He will deceive you. And ultimately, he wants to destroy you and your marriage, to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex inside of marriage. And yet he's very subtle about it. He wants to get married couples busy and tired and frustrated and angry and fighting so that they wouldn't come together as one. And when you don't have sex for longer stretches of time, your desires increase and you're more vulnerable to the enemy. You leave a door open for Satan to enter in. And he's ready to tempt you to find your fulfillment somewhere else, somewhere outside of your marriage. In Corinth, it might have been taking a long walk in the night up a steep hill to the temple where there were hundreds of prostitutes waiting for you. You might have had to pass by several people the way there and on the way back. Nevertheless, many men were doing it. Sounds pretty sick, 
Paul addresses that in chapter 6, verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So you've got to understand, listen, sex is deeply spiritual. It's not just physical. That's what he's trying to say here. You're joining yourself to someone else. These men were participating with pagan gods and worshiping false gods as they were having sex with these women. That sounds pretty sick, but today, when you feel tempted, it's a lot easier and a lot quicker, and no one has to know about it. We've got digital temples in our pockets, don't we? In our phones, where with just one tap of your finger, you've got a whole harem of thousands of women right at your fingertips to choose from, right in the in the comfort of your own living room or basement. Hear me, there is a real enemy and he's after you and he's after your marriage. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's a roaring lion waiting to pounce upon you in your greatest weakness. He wants to desecrate the beauty of Christ and the deeper meaning of marriage. You might say, well, there's nothing really bad going on here, right? It's just me and a screen. Why is that such a big deal? And we forget that sexual immorality of any kind is deeply spiritual. This is idolatry. We're worshiping a false god, an image. Just like these Corinthians, we're having sex with prostitutes on a screen who are also made in the image of God. And women who are probably caught in a cycle and can't get out. So what can we do? We can't seek out satisfaction outside of marriage. How can we guard then our marriages and in so doing glorify Christ? Three things I want to end on. Three words of application. Number one, talk to your spouse. Talk to your spouse. As you reflect on this, my hope is that you would take some time, even this week, block off some time, carve out some time, where you can talk openly and honestly about your marriage and perhaps your sex life. We can't be timid in talking about these kinds of things. Husbands, you take the lead here. So many of us, we, we started off pursuing our wives, didn't we, in the earlier years, and now we're pursuing a lot of other things, many of which don't really matter. So talk. It could be as simple as just asking your wife this question, how can I grow in loving you and serving you and making our marriage a priority in 2020? How can I grow in loving you and serving you and making our marriage a priority in 2020? Talk about your needs together. And if there's maybe a consistent pattern of withholding sex, there's no sexual activity, ask why. What's getting in the way? And just explore all that with grace and tenderness. It could be that this year in 2020, you make a simple plan. I was thinking about just resolutions and how often they're so individual. Why don't we sit down as a couple and say, what can we do to strengthen our marriage in 2020? 
How can we make it more of a priority? How can we date each other again? How can we make a plan maybe for a special getaway sometime? So number one, talk to your spouse. If you're a single person, maybe you're in a relationship, maybe you're prompted by this to talk to the person you're dating. And this is going to bring up some questions about how you're using your time and what really is in the future for you. Number one, talk to your spouse. Number two, get help from the church. Get help from the church. Sometimes we forget that this was actually written to an entire church to be read out loud. So it's composed of married people, singles, young, old, widows. Everybody was hearing this together. That's important that we know that. It was a church that, that needed to hear this message. The entire church needed to understand the biblical teaching on this topic. And the same is true for when we address singleness in a couple weeks. We all need to hear about that together, no matter who you are. He's telling them, we're in this together. We are saints together. In 1 Corinthians 1, that's how he began the letter. You remember this? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So guys, we're in this together. I've said this before, we're just an imperfect group of people clinging to a perfect Christ. We've got to be there to help one another. Is there a conflict in your marriage? A past wound or hurt that's still plaguing your marriage? Do you feel stuck? Are you barely hanging on? Get help. Don't accept that this is the way it's always going to be. Get help from others here, pastors, pastors' wives, friends that you can trust. Get help from the church. And then number three, so talk to your spouse, get help from the church. And number three, come clean. Come clean and claim the blood of Christ. Come clean and claim the blood of Christ. There are some of you here in this room who have never repented of a past sexual sin in your life. Look at me. Listen to me. There are some of you who are just wanting to move on and to bury that and to think, that's in my past, and you've never brought it into the light. You've never confessed it. You've never repented of that sin, and you're still dealing with the shame and the guilt of it. You need to come clean before Jesus Christ and perhaps even your spouse and begin that conversation. It says in 1 John 1, 6 and 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You can come clean today and find forgiveness of that through the blood of Jesus. But you need to come into the light. Come clean and find deep healing and cleansing. And this blood it not only cleanses us, it gives us victory and freedom. In Revelation 12, 11, says, And they have overcome him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So listen, I, I don't want to have you think to yourself, well, I've got I've to really uh, muster up my willpower in this new year. I've got to come clean with all these things because Satan's not scared of that, is he? He's not frightened by your ability to do better and to try harder. You know what he's scared of? He's scared of the blood of Christ. That's what frightens him. You know why? 
Because at the cross, Christ bled for you and died for you and defeated the devil. And his power has no authority in your life anymore. So don't be listening to his lies anymore. You've been set free in Christ. You're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Some of you feel sad and defeated and your soul is shriveled up. Turn and be saved through the blood of Christ for you on the cross. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So as we close here, what would matter most in 2020 to you? I pray that your marriage would move from being a marriage that's just stuck to a marriage that's now free, to a marriage that's just settling, to a marriage that's now growing, to a marriage that's just really stinky, to a marriage that's now beautiful. And God can do that by his grace.